Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Puzzle of Sidewinder Gulch, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. What happens when a Korean War vet recovering from serious injuries wins a ghost town in a contest, meets a hard-riding, gun-toting cowgirl, and is threatened by three dangerous people all within a few days? Answer, cockeyed characters, pixelated dialogue, zany romance, and heart-stopping suspense. In short, everything Kellen fans love about his novels. Based in part on real events, and set in a real ghost town that was actually given away by the Saturday Evening Post in a real contest, a place you can still visit today. Waldo Emerson Whitelaw was pleasantly surprised when he won a supposedly worthless Arizona ghost town named Sidewinder Gulch in a write-a-jingle contest. He was less pleasantly surprised when the glowering Hugo Pung offered him $6,000 for the deed and threatened his life if he refused. Was Sidewinder Gulch somehow more valuable than Whitelaw believed? So he took laconic, plain-spoken New Englanders Habakkuk Ware and his wife Melina, who had raised him after his parents' death, and set off for Arizona. When they arrived, he met the rear end of a cow backing toward him in a clear state of hysteria, with ranchwoman Gwendolyn Carver attached to a rope at its head. "'You underfed, skinny-legged dude,' she said to Whitelaw. "'Grab hold of this rope and help!' Everything he said and did after that only seemed to irritate her more. That night, self-styled land speculator Miles Winter and his seductive gal-friend Mona Avery showed up and made him an even bigger offer for the deed to Sidewinder Gulch. A few hours later, a shot rang out. Thus begins one of Clarence Buddington Kellen's finest and rarest novels, previously only published as a seven-part serial in the legendary and best-selling magazine of its era, The Saturday Evening Post. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Puzzle of Sidewinder Gulch. The Arizona Mysteries In the mid-1930s, household name author Clarence Buddington Kelland decided to drive from his home on Long Island to Hollywood where he had movie business to transact. Kelland had traveled to Hollywood before, but had always taken the train or flown. This time, he might have wanted to see the country more closely. And if so, he certainly got his wish. His car broke down outside Phoenix, and during the three-day layover for repairs, Kelland, a lifelong Easterner, fell in love with the desert, the town, and the state. He bought a ranch, moved his family west, and, inspired as never before, began researching and writing his famed Arizona Quartet, telling the story of his adopted state from the early 1859 days to the building of the canal that made modern Phoenix possible, 1885. But that by no means sated Kellen's enthusiasm for Arizona, and he soon began a series of suspense novels centered on the state's contemporary life, The Arizona Mysteries. Part 1 The misshapen man arrived in our village of Hancock on July 18th. I remember the date because it was just seven days past my 25th birthday and ten days after I was notified that I had won the Dinkles Muffins contest. 
Also, it was the morning of this same day that the discourteous young woman drove through town in her yellow foreign runabout. I recently had been discharged from the hospital in San Francisco, where I had been recovering from a severe manhandling in Korea, and was continuing my recuperation in my old family home in Hancock, Vermont. Here I was coddled and waited upon hand and foot by Habakkuk Ware and his wife, who had served our family since my childhood, and had stood somewhat in loco parentes since the death of my parents some years ago. For an active young man to be confined to his bed as I had been for months is a monotonous business, and it became my habit to while away the long hours by solving puzzles and entering contests as advertised in the newspapers or over the air. I suppose I hold the world's record for having worked more crossword puzzles than any other living man while my leg was in traction, but I never won any but very minor prizes in the contests in which I was an entrant, until I was the nonplussed winner in the Dinkles Muffins affair, and became the possessor of the capital prize. This, to my amusement and perplexity, was nothing less than a ghost town in Arizona named Sidewinder Gulch. My victory had been announced on radio and television, and in newspaper advertisements, in consequence of which I was enduring some notoriety of a humorous nature in the village. I was sunning myself in a wooden chair on the sidewalk in front of the inn when old Pazzy Wilkes stopped by to display his spavined wit. Here tell, he said nasally, that she up and won a haunted house. Not exactly, Pazzy, I answered. A ghost town. No spooks. Just a deserted village. Where's it at? Pazzy wanted to know. Arizona, I told him. He snorted. Huh. Tumble down, he asked. The buildings are said to be in a fair state of repair. Buildings? Such as what? Hotel, saloon, several houses, windmill, and there's an abandoned, worked-out gold mine. Pazzy snorted again. What you calculate to do with it? He asked. Give it back to the Indians, I answered. It was a lovely New England day. White, fluffy clouds cast moving shadows upon the green mountain slopes. Locusts made sounds that told of the heat. Dogs lay curled in the sun, and boys fished off the bridge across the stream that cut the village into two parts. There was little traffic that day, so the brilliant yellow roadster was even more noticeable than it would have been ordinarily, though it could never have been inconspicuous. It came down the hill at reckless speed, whisked across the bridge, and slid to a squealing stop eight or ten feet from where I was taking my ease. Out of the side of this expensive car leaned a young woman whose tousled hair, as the sun touched it, was the color of polished silver. She leaned an elbow on the door, and there were gems in the bracelet circling her wrist, the face was young and arrogant and deliberately without expression. It was a face that had been worked upon by beauty technicians, and though in certain circles it might have been admired, it did not appeal to me. She eyed me as if I were one of the peasantry. I did not create a favorable impression. What's the name of this? She waved a slender hand to indicate the town. Hancock Village. I informed her. 
Is your hat nailed on? she demanded. Hers was a peculiar, clipped, metallic voice. I did not loll in the chair, but it may have seemed that I did so because my game leg was stretched at full length. I may have seemed to lack manners. However, her attitude definitely lacked graciousness. Someone, I said unsmilingly, borrowed our book of decorum and lost it. Her eyes narrowed. Do they serve drinks in this bar? she asked, jerking a manicured thumb toward the hotel. I believe they do, I told her. She fumbled in a handbag, drew out a dollar bill, and extended it toward me. Get me a ginger ale, she said, and keep the change. The situation was not without elements of humor. I reached for my cane, pushed myself to my feet, removed my hat, and pulled my forelock in the accepted manner of a serf addressing the lady of the manor. I hobbled to the car, took the dollar bill, and chanced to glance at her face. The lips were parted, and there was a startled look in her eyes. I limped away into the bar, bought a bottle of ginger ale, and took a paper cup. With these and the change, I made my way back to the roadster. I handed the girl the bottle and the cup, and then the change without meeting her eye. I was turning away when I felt soft fingers touch my wrist. Wounded? she asked. Slightly, said I. You look like a yokel, she said. I am a yokel, I responded coldly. And I, she said in that queer, unaccented voice, am a nasty, hand-pitted snob. With which she trod on the gas pedal and whisked away in a shower of pebbles. I returned to my seat and stared after the departing car, more surprised than amused. The train whistled for the station, and presently a bus delivered three passengers at the hotel's door. Two of them obviously were salesmen. The third was the misshapen man. He was broad, but one shoulder was higher than the other. His neck was somewhat awry. One leg was, it seemed to me, abnormally muscular. The other was shorter and withered, and on the foot was a shoe with a great sole four inches thick. His head was round and bald, and had flabby lips and eyes the color of boiled onions. But he was spry. He alighted from the bus with agility, snatched his two pieces of luggage in big hands, and bounded with a queer sidling motion up the steps and into the office of the inn. He did not seem to be a desirable addition to our population. I dozed in the clement warmth. How long it was before a voice aroused me I do not know. But startled, I peered upward into the pale, bulbous eyes of the misshapen man. Your name Whitelaw? he asked in a reedy tenor voice. It is, I answered shortly. Waldo Emerson Whitelaw, he continued. Correct, I replied. He dragged a wooden chair close to my side. I came to Hancock on purpose to see you, sir, he said. Indeed, I asked curtly, for I did not like the appearance, manner, or odor of the man. 
a matter of business, he said. What business can I possibly have with you? I wanted to know. A bit of politeness will do no harm, he said. I said nothing. You, he said, without further preliminaries, won the Dinkles Muffins contest. I did, I said shortly. What good is it to you? he asked. This ghost town. Why, said I, it is an asset. I suppose that is true, he said. Assets can be bought and sold. So my college course in economics informed me. What value do you place on this particular asset? I have not affixed a price tag, I said. Dinkle's Muffins paid the owner $6,000 for it, he said. That is my understanding, I said. They were stung, he said tartly. Which, I answered, is their tough luck. It's worthless, he said. It's miles from anywhere, in a blasted desert that's miserably cold in winter and torrid hot in summer. No decent road. Worthless. In which case, I said, having inherited some fragments of Yankee shrewdness, why does it interest you? To this he made no direct reply. I'll give you two thousand dollars cash for it, he offered. Wouldn't you be stung? I said, somewhat sarcastically. If it's worthless? I've only seen photographs of it. I might take a liking to it. You Vermonters, he said, with something resembling a sneer, like to haggle. We have few pleasures, I explained. Twenty-five hundred, he bid. I'm commencing to be interested, I told him. Hard cash, he insinuated. I'll discuss the matter when I've seen the property. It's a couple of thousand miles off, he argued. You don't look much like traveling. You stand together in a good snag of cash. Three thousand dollars. I repeat, I said. The town is not for sale until I've seen it and estimated its value. Certainly I would be silly to sell it for less than Mr. Dinkle paid for it. You mean you're holding out for six thousand? I'm not holding out, said I. I'm simply declining to deal blindly. My last offer. I'll give you the full six thousand. Mr., said I, and hesitated. Pung, he said. You go Pung. Very well, then. Mr. Pung, it occurs to me to ask you why you did not buy this ghost town before Mr. Dingle bought it, from the original owner. I didn't, he said, and stopped suddenly. You didn't, I exclaimed. Until Mr. Dinkle bought it and gave it some advertising, you didn't what? Know of its existence, perhaps? Or weren't aware that it had a special value that made this seemingly worthless ghost town desirable? I have a use for it, he said. I take it you are a businessman, I suggested. You would not make a purchase unless you were fairly sure of deriving a profit. You wouldn't so readily raise your offer to six thousand dollars unless you believed it was worth a great deal more, either intrinsically or for some 
shall we say, secret reason known only to yourself. Naturally, he said uncomfortably, I expect to make money on the deal. Equally naturally, I told him firmly, I shan't sell without thorough investigation. I felt for my cane and pushed myself to my feet. Good day, Mr. Pong, I said. I'm sorry your trip to Hancock has been futile. I did not offer to shake hands, nor did he. His onion eyes narrowed and came to life. There was a malicious twist of his pendulous lips. You would do well to reconsider, Mr. Whitelaw, he said. Could that be construed to be a threat? I asked. Merely a suggestion, he said. Sidewinder Gulch is a remote, lonely place in a wild country. It is named for a species of rattlesnake. In such a locality, a tenderfoot might come to grief. I have already come to considerable grief in one way and another, I said. Perhaps my bad luck has run out, and better fortune lies ahead. We New Englanders are supposed to be canny folk who take no chances. That is a mistake. We took a chance when we crossed the water to the New World. We took a chance when we crossed the water to the New World. We took chances when we sailed our merchant ships to China, or to the Pacific in search for whales. It may even be that a tincture of adventure lingers in our blood. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Puzzle of Sidewinder Gulch. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.